From the US to Europe, an international podcast breaking down structured credit one tranche at a time. Welcome to The Last Tranche, Credit Flux's bi-monthly podcast discussing CLOs and all things structured credit. I am your host and reporter with Credit Flux, Hugh Minch. Hello and welcome to The Last Tranche. And today's episode will be discussing environmental, social and governance, ESG, the movement that is continuing its relentless sweep through the global credit markets. Uh, here to discuss with me today is Philip Rossiti. Uh, Phil is the head of US and performing credit and portfolio manager at Barden Hill Investment Partners. Phil, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me here. So she's been at the forefront of market participants' business plans the last few years. Um, I want to start by asking you, when did you notice um, that ESG was becoming a priority within CLO specifically, you know, especially as far as the investor base is concerned? Yeah, we, we've it's been about uh, three years now. We started to receive additional questionnaires and uh, DDQs uh, relating to our overall process and procedures and evaluation of ESG-related risks within our portfolios. And it's varying levels depending on the the investor or the LP of consideration, a lot of information gathering, uh, early stages. Uh, But really in in 2018, uh, for us, it it, uh, grew more prevalent. And in 2019, we really started working on uh, solutions for uh, addressing and evaluating uh, these risks to our underlying uh, investment assets. I still, you know, today there, there are some Investors and LPs that are, um, you know, very highly focused and, and have very significant endeavors, and others are just getting up to speed. So it's been staggered over the last few years. Yeah, how have your conversations um, with your investors evolved more recently? What are some of the priorities around ESG investing that you're noticing from them? Really, uh, there has been a lot of uh, focus on uh, underlying process. There's been a lot of focus on approach, and we're seeing. Uh, sustainability-linked financings in fixed income. Uh, we've just had a sustainability-linked loan in market. And there's there's a lot of uh, questions around how we evaluate. I think there's been a lot of comparison from one manager, uh, one investor to the next uh, in how we evaluate uh, some of these underlying risks and how we approach. Uh, so, you know, initially, initial conversations are, are uh, negative screening and, and, you know, we have uh, some... Uh, separately managed account mandates that have neg- negative screening criteria. We've seen uh, CLOs primarily in Europe um, get completed with negative screening c- criteria, but it's moving more toward, toward positive and proactive and you know thematic types of, of conversations. Um, so uh, uh, it's been developing. Um, and I think now, you know, as, as there are more tools and, you know, we can uh, discuss at some point kind of the, the level of quality of these tools and how they're progressing. But if there have been more tools and more focus uh, amongst uh, underlying investor communities, I think we're getting um, you know, a bit more knowledgeable uh, on the category. So, you know, we're not at a point where there's real been there's been real dictation or, or desire. Um, I think the fundraising um, with very specific steps for thematic type investing we haven't really seen or or experienced that but we know that's coming and you know we know that's coming as the market develops for uh, these considerations i know our listeners are very well versed on all things credit and i'm sure esg as well but since this is a public podcast i I just want to give the opportunities to tell our listeners you know what what do you mean by negative screening and what are some of the alternative approaches that are out there 
Yeah, uh, negative screening is um, you know, creating uh, specific categories or generally sector focus where you would prohibit investment within an investment vehicle. So uh, tobacco, uh, alcohol, gambling, uh, nuclear energy, uh, armaments or ammunition historically have fallen into those you know, broad categories for uh, negative screening. And we're seeing more consideration around types of fossil fuel investment, exploration investment, uh, coal uh, financing, as well move into um, move into um, a consideration. Uh, so that's that's a traditional uh, negative screening model. And you know if you if you consider uh, positive screening or thematic type investing, then you're moving towards you know, transition type investing, where uh, you're trying to provide influence or, or at least gather information and data on the company's efforts to uh, improve their uh, underlying uh, considerations around environmental, social, or governance concern. What are these companies actually doing uh, to drive uh, better outcomes and improvement? So, uh, you know, negative screening is, is very straightforward uh, to implement, um, but we, we do think it is limiting and, and you know, we are pushing uh, more aggressively for that uh, you know, positive screening type approach where we take a proactive stance in uh, some of the investments that we make. So I'll get on to your own approach to ESG at Barden Hill a, a little later on, but um, you know there, there is a ge geographical distinction to make too, where you know, Europe is a little bit further along the ESG path in terms of how how developed the the market is. Um, in Barden Hill was quite early in issuing a European deal that included negative screening for non-ESG loans. With regards to the US, though, do you feel like it's following Europe on on this, or is there a, a divergence between the two regions? I do think the U.S. is following uh, Europe. Um, there's definitely a divergence in uh, progression, uh, but I do think the U.S. is catching up, um, you know, quite quickly. Again, just in the in the last two weeks, we've seen the first sustainability linked loan uh, enter the uh, uh, U.S. market, and I can you know, describe the the details around that loan and and some of the mechanics. But we're we're seeing the the ratcheting mechanisms included and the economic incentives. Uh, to drive uh, certain outcomes, but we're also seeing it and hearing it. I think in the in the the narrative, uh, as we've seen some real penalties on yields tied to companies that either haven't disclosed a lot of information, uh, maybe around uh, social impact of their business models. Um, so, so we've seen investors shy away aggressively, and we think that is changing behaviors of management teams. We've seen more disclosures in earnings on diversity of hiring. We've seen more disclosure in earnings on uh, business model uh, pivot and, and focus in earnings on underlying uh, environmental impact and, and where reinvestment is gonna go uh, moving forward. Uh, we're, we're, we're primarily a private market within uh, the loan asset class. So getting this disclosure uh, and having this focus we think is important, not just at the, the issuer level, but at the underwriter or ranger level, you know, you know, the language of, of these concerns um, should be addressed and understood by capital markets professionals. And the, the more questions we ask, the more information we get back, and uh, the more top of mind uh, some of these concerns are. And at the end of the day, we, we really do consider um, them just traditional uh, business risks for lending. And um, and we think that the, the market needs to uh, adopt and push for increased disclosure. So so U.S. is behind for sure. Uh, 
Um, but I think we're uh, making uh, quick strides and, and we'll be catching up pretty quickly. I'm interested in the penalties linked to that uh, sustainability linked loan that you mentioned. I know a couple of years ago in Europe, there was a loan where the coupon would rise and fall depending on the company's emissions and the data that came out around ESG. Is that what you mean by the penalties that are linked to ESG criteria? Or is it more at the issuance stage where they're trying to tap the debt markets? Yeah, it's it's at the issuance stage where they're they're tapping the debt markets um, and the you know the the specifics on uh, on this offering. Uh, it's a, a chemical manufacturer uh, that you know historically has had um, pretty significant uh, emission release um, as part of their uh, business model, and they've committed to reducing underlying emissions with proper scrubbers and uh, and improved uh, industrial processes. I'm, I'm doing this. I don't want to get into the specifics of the underlying uh, credit, but uh, they've also tied an economic incentive incentive to meeting certain uh, emissions targets as part of their uh, manufacturing structure. Now, that's good. Uh, and we want to see more of that. And you want to incentivize uh, these businesses to uh, invest in uh, renewable and alternative um, production uh, processes. However, in, in this instance, you know, it, it's being sold as a sustainability-linked loan where the EPA has already come in and required them to make these emission reductions. So that's a bit of the balance that we have to navigate in this in, in this territory is, you know, how much of this is, you know, actual uh, drive for change in business model and how much of that should be rewarded economically versus how much of this is, you know, regulatory focus and happening anyway. And you know, they're putting a kind of greenwashing um, an opportunity uh, for the market. And that's on us to, to decipher. I think they're all steps forward, uh, quite frankly. And it's the market's uh, job to decipher what that economic incentive you know, should be and, and needs to be and, and how hard we push. So in terms of credits, like the one, the one you mentioned, the, the chemical manufacturer, but also maybe, maybe there are examples of ESG that are even a little bit more complicated than, than emissions, which can be quite easily computed, but are there any examples of where the data gathering process is um, more complex? What are some of the challenges with ESG investing with regards to data gathering? Yeah, I think um, you know, disclosure is, is quite difficult, especially on a lot of these um, you know, private reporting and, and private entities that historically haven't had to focus on uh, some of these issues. So uh, first and foremost, we start with a questionnaire that goes at the time we do any initial underwrite, uh, and we push the underwriters to um, push the company to answer these questions. And the more investors that do that, the more that disclosure will become commonplace uh, in new issue underwriting. And you know, the management team doesn't really want to get on the phone 10 times answering the same questions when they can put out a disclosure statement and start addressing those questions up front. So that's what we're doing to improve data. Some of it's more nuanced like privacy concerns on some large uh, uh, data gathering institutions or, or, or credit rating institutions. Uh, and uh, that's an area that you, you, you hear a bit about in, in headlines, but it's really hard to decipher um, uh, what an institution is actually doing with your data, how they're profiting uh, on your data, uh, and whether or not there are, are any ethical concerns uh, around that. It's a very dynamic and changing environment. and. Um, I think privacy is, is growing uh, uh, as a significant issue. Uh, so that's an area we need to focus on. And again, we can, if we don't get the answers we like, if we're not getting the disclosure we like, 
um, we need to um, kind of invest with our feet um, and uh, and make sure we're, we're we're not investing in entities where we feel like there's maybe something that is not being uh, fully disclosed. So that's going to be difficult, and you know, we've seen solutions uh, from third parties um, that will provide um, ESG type scoring, and there 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 are various levels of completeness. Uh, I, I'd say we're still early, but we're nearing a, a tipping point of the data actually uh, being valuable or, or useful for um, consideration. Um, but again, it's, it's you know, we, we demoed a, a product recently uh, that provided sector scoring uh, based on known sector issues. And we went through and it was pretty interesting and there's some uptake from the investor community to utilize these scores to compare you know, managers and portfolio performances against the, you know, each other. Uh, so they're getting some traction. But then I asked a, a specific question about um, for-profit prisons and, and where do for-profit prisons fall within your sector categorization? And they fell within building products and construction, which had some of the best ESG scoring possible. So theoretically, you could pull together a portfolio that was high weight uh, uh, for-profit prisons and have some of the best scoring ESG portfolios uh, in the market. And again, that's not a knock on the product. It's, it's again, disclosure is low. So it's a starting point. And we need to keep uh, continuing to challenge um, uh, these providers to get better and better data, to get better and better solutions over time. So you mentioned greenwashing a little bit earlier. Um, greenwashing, for those who don't know, is where either the, the, the company can essentially gin up their ESG statistics for the purposes of misleading investors. I think there's been a few high-profile examples in the news recently of um, you know, companies that have been accused of greenwashing, some of them perhaps CLO adjacent. This is something that draws a lot of attention, but how widespread do you feel it is within the market in, in practice? Yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about a handful of issues at this point that, have, that even have any considerations uh, for ESG or ESG economic ratchets or anything um, of that nature. So I, I think it's been more prevalent in and a large IG type or, or, or fixed income bond issuances uh, within loans, it's still early stage. So there's no, I would say there's no issue. And again, you know, even having the discussion, I think is a positive point and it's a positive direction. And the onus is on the underlying investor to uh, ensure that um, they're making the, the right decisions. What, what I would hate to see is a year from now, two years from now, that kind of a technical manipulation of of data to drive some of the highest scoring um, based on uh, sector-based ESG scoring. It doesn't really have any underlying borrower focus. It's not really looking at the underlying companies and the risk. It's making more generalizations or, you know, company XYZ is required to do something. And, you know, there's a, a basket within a CLO for a certain percentage of assets to be sustainably linked. And, and, and that becomes just a, a 25 basis point type uh, fee benefit. I would mean, hate to see the, the market devolve into that. And I, I don't think it will. I think that the just the nature of um, you know, the consideration and kind of governance and, and, uh, and social issues, I think it requires more uh, in-depth analysis. I don't think it's just going to be another um, checkbox. I think it's kind of on all of us to, to push forward uh, these agendas and to provide a proper transition period 
for a lot of these companies, um, you know, with with economic benefits and hindrances, uh, depending on underlying performance. So, yeah, it's possible, but I'm hopeful um, that how the, the nature of how this is coming together, um, that we'll see less of that and we'll see more proactive approaches. So you've touched on this already, but I mean, it's clear in, you know, from the conversations I have with people across the market is that there's a real lack of standardization when it comes to ESG investing, you know, not only in terms of managers, but also in terms of what the investors are requiring of managers. But how big of an issue is this? And do you think there's progress being made in terms of standardization? There is. Uh, the more data that's released, the more information that we get, the more progress we'll have in standardization. We're not there uh, yet. Uh, I have seen some uh, product demos for the third-party ratings that are um, much more in-depth. They're, they're raising issues and topics that, uh, you know, a year or two ago, we likely were not considering and, and are now considering. So they're changing the narrative. And, and so I do think that uh, we'll move forward and the market has a tendency to find an efficient solution. And I think that efficient solution will, will, will have some depth to it. So we're, we're, we're probably a year or two away from that. And in the interim, we'll, we'll run our own solutions and our own data analytics and try and refine. Um, you know, but our goal and our hope is that there will be a, a good third party solution that we can rely on that the market will uh, adopt um, and, uh, and we'll go from there. So in the interim time, since it is still quite individualized, could you summarize Barden Hill's approach to ESG? How are you thinking about it? Our, our process um, is um, we, we model it off of uh, sector-based ratings from a, a third-party source. So what we'll pull down, uh, if we're looking at an energy company, if we're looking at a healthcare company, pharma company, we'll pull down the sector-based scoring, which details based on the underlying categories of environmental, social, and governance. It gives us five subcategories of, within each. Uh, with considerations and, uh, and average scores for the underlying uh, segment. Uh, it's primarily um, public company driven, but it's a large data set. So it gives us a good indication of what some of the, the considerations are um, for a specific business model and what type of questions we should ask. And then we aggregate scoring on each of the subcategories. So there's five questions for environmental, five questions for social, and five for governance. And we aggregate that up into a, a total score for the underlying asset. We did all the assets within the within the, the portfolios. We had that completed by uh, the beginning of 2020, and we're updating quarterly as we move forward. And we hope to be able to run some analytics, you know, not only on performance but also on progression uh, of scores for each of the underlying assets uh, at some point in 2022. Once we get enough data um, uh, within our system. And so not only are we, um, are we scoring, but we also have a responsible uh, business investment committee. And any analyst, portfolio manager, or trader can elevate uh, a situation to the RBIC uh, for discussion and consideration. And the RBIC is uh, comprised of investment professionals, but also professionals from across our business and a third party consultant. Uh, so it's a pretty wide range of views uh, to tackle some of the more uh, difficult situations that we may encounter and discuss uh, forward approaches. And I, I would say lastly, with our process, we do look for proactive solutions. We do look to uh, go into uh, sponsors, go into um, business leaders and capital markets professionals and try and propose uh, proper uh, transition solutions uh, for certain businesses. 
Um, and uh, we think taking that proactive approach just helps drive uh, the narrative. Um, so that's our process. And uh, we think it's working well for us. It's definitely making us a lot more knowledgeable. And if we see a better solution come along with a lot more detail, um, we'll incorporate it into our existing process. So with, with the scoring system, do you know of any examples of credits where perhaps you felt the need to change the ES score, either saying, you know, the credits improved its ESG criteria, therefore we can raise the score on the other, on the flip side, those criteria deteriorated. So we're going to lower the score. Do you have any examples of where that was the case? We, we haven't lowered a score yet, but um, just in the last quarter, um, we have, a, there's a, a prison telecom business where we have uh, an investment and we've been very focused um, with this business on, there's the uh, regulatory rate uh, reductions for telecommunication services from the, the prison community um, uh, that the company is being impacted by. And historically, I would say this company has probably fought pretty hard to keep those, those rates high. Um, and on the last call, the CEO of the business said, our mission statement is to reduce these rates. Now, we're not naive, but we're listening for cues. We're listening for uh, the the the, the business reinvestment uh, shift. And they are shifting reinvestment towards a tablet model, towards a re-education model. Uh, we're listening for uh, recidivism, which is the likelihood a prisoner, once leaving prison, returns back to prison. What are they doing to try and, and drive those solutions? And we're listening for um, calls for price gouging, like in periods of high volume calls, like Mother's Day or Father's Day. Uh, where you see prices go up for communication services? Are they making sure that those prices stay at a more normalized rate? So we're, we're again, the, the, the message is being heard. The economic impact of, uh, of not trying to adapt business model uh, is very clear. Uh, and that's what we're focused on. So, so, you know, additional investment with that company will require uh, additional improvement uh, against these goals. The go and these are goals that they're setting for themselves. Now, we have also made calls into the sponsor on this entity. We've made calls into the company to try and reflect uh, these, these types of initiatives. So we're happy to see them start to play through. Again, we're not naive. We're watching closely. Uh, but that's the type of consideration that you'll, you'll end up seeing. Okay, maybe we need to adjust our, our scoring uh, down lower. And our scoring isn't a bright line test scoring. If the score is too high or if it scores too low. It doesn't have any material impact to investment strategy. It's really to, to set a baseline uh, around one credit versus another and then to track progression. So that's one that we're watching very closely for progress. It's very interesting. And my final question to you then is, given that there's still not a huge amount of standardization across the industry when it comes to ESG, do you think there's any role for regulation just in order to harmonize everything across the industry? If not, what would you like to see happen instead? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big proponent of self-regulation, and I, and I and I and you know the harder we push and, and the harder the underwriters push for proper information disclosure, the market tends to find a way, and I think the market is finding a way um, as these issues become much more prevalent, much more uh, communicated. Um, you know, I, I could see uh, a path for regulatory disclosure requirements for public companies um, increasing the speed with which we get to um, uh, some uh, systematic approach to um, uh, information disclosure. I could see a benefit in that, but I, I do think the market is solving uh, the issue and investors are uh, 
um, are uh, you know, communicating desire with their investment and, and how they prioritize uh, capital deployment. So um, that's what I really hope to see. I hope to see that continue at an increasing pace uh, over the next year or two to in, in, uh, have the market provide a solution for um, implementation. Well, thank you so much for joining the last chance today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Hugh, for inviting me. We had a good time. Thank you for listening to The Last Tranche. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Credit Flux and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share our content.